something you may not know about me is that I hate cooking. I hate cooking. You know, if you know me, you know that I have a pretty laid-back, even-keeled personality. I've been described as unflappable. Cooking flaps me. It's stressful, and it's overwhelming, and I hate it. And I know that some of you find it relaxing, you enjoy trying new things and experimenting, but I do not. When I was a single man, let me tell you how I survived. I made the same seven meals every week. and Let me describe them to you. I can make spaghetti, and I can make tacos. Now understand there's a baseline similarity there of browning ground beef. Then I can make a chicken wrap, which is a taco with a chicken breast in it. I can make chicken parmesan, which sounds impressive, except it's just spaghetti with a chicken breast on it. I can make a chicken salad, which is a chicken wrap with no wrap, and I can make a taco salad, which is a taco with no wrap. And then I would order pizza at least once a week. That's, that's, that is how I survived as a single man. And now, I'm married, I have kids, I have a sister who lives with me who's gluten and dairy free, and you know, that adds a whole other level of stress to it, just trying to take care of my family and you know, feed my sister. Uh, but I still try to help every once in a while, I still try to cook every once in a while, but it's an ordeal unless it's one of those things I've already described. I'm expert to those. Even if I have a recipe to follow, it's, I don't want to do it. Now, before you laugh at me too much, and I don't mind being laughed at, but before you laugh at me too much, let me point out to you that most of us feel the exact same way about evangelism as I feel about cooking. We hate it. It's stressful. It makes us anxious. It's a big responsibility, and we don't feel equipped to do it. We feel foolish when we try. We're sh- we feel ashamed when we don't try. Not to mention the guilt. Maybe every once in a while we'll do it, but really we'd just rather if someone else took care of that. Right? But let me tell you something that I discovered about cooking. I hate being the chef, but I'm really happy to be the sous chef. I don't mind helping someone else cook. If Becky or someone else gives me a task to do, chop those, stir those things together, boil that, I can do that, no problem. I can manage that as long as I know that someone else is in control and I don't have to keep track of everything. I can manage it. I just have to fulfill my assigned task. I'm really happy with that job. But guess what? Sharing the gospel isn't like cooking a meal on your own. It's more like being a sous chef. The weight of responsibility on us, sorry, the weight of responsibility isn't on us to make the meal successful. We've just been given a task that we're called to do faithfully. You see, we often talk about sharing the gospel or as evangelism as our mission, and that's true, but in a more complete sense, evangelism is how we fulfill our role in God's mission. It's not just our mission in its fullest sense, it's God's mission that we have a role in. God's the chef. And we're just the sous chef has been called to faithfully fulfill our role. So today we're looking at a passage of the Bible where we see that, that, we see that truth play out in the lives of the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas. They're able to share the gospel in the face of what is actually quite serious uh, hardship and, and persecution because they know it's not up to them to make it work. They're just fulfilling their role in God's mission to save the world. 
So my, my hope for us today as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 13 and 14 is that you're going to see evangelism in a new light. That you'll understand that saving people from their sins is God's mission. It's not ours. It's his job. That we're not responsible for the success of the mission. We just have a role to fulfill faithfully and we can leave the rest to God. So if you're taking notes, the big idea of our message today is evangelism is how we fulfill our role in God's mission to save the world. It's not our mission. It's evangelism is how we fulfill our role in God's mission to save the world. Now, as we consider that big idea today, there's three follow-up questions that come out of this text that we're going to have to ask. Three questions that we say, okay, if that's true, what about these things? This text that we're going to look at today in Acts 13 and 14 addresses those. The first of them is this. If evangelism is our way of fulfilling the role, how we fulfill our role in God's mission to save the world, what do we mean when we say God's mission? What is God's mission? Right? And I've already kind of said, and you're not going to be shocked to hear this, that God's mission is to save the world through Jesus. Right? That's what he's doing. God's mission is to save the world through Jesus. That's pretty simple, but, but even beyond that, that you know, big idea of what the mission is, this passage is going to show us the scope of that mission. Let me show you how. So last week, we, we looked at Paul preaching at a synagogue in a town called Pisidian Antioch in what is now known as Central Turkey, the region of Galatia. If you were here last week, you know that we looked at Paul's sermon in detail, and Paul was preaching about how Jesus is the one that we need. He's the one. And our passage picks up right after that, that sermon ends. As that sermon ends, they're leaving the synagogue. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 42, which Debbie just read for us, but look, let's look at it again. It says, as Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So initially, this sermon has a really good response. People are interested. They want to hear more. And it seems like some even follow in faith, because Paul tells them to continue in the grace of God. Right? They've, they've responded to Jesus. And so, verse 44 continues the next week. 44. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Now, Paul and Barnabas in one week have made a huge impact on the city. The whole, tons of people have come out to hear about Jesus, which is great, except that in doing so, there are some negative side effects that have happened as well. Look at verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. All of a sudden, Paul and Barnabas find themselves in a nightmare scenario, right? Things are going well, people are wanting to hear about Jesus, and then the pushback comes. People start heaping abuse on them. They start contradicting them publicly, speaking up and saying that's not right. They're heckling them as they preach. Everything you don't want when you're trying to share the gospel, right? But look at how Paul and Barnabas respond in verse 46. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject, but since you rejected and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things that you may not see initially in here. 
about how this response speaks of the scope of God's mission. His mission to save the world. Look, the first thing that we're going to see in here is this, that God's plan to save the world rests on God's promises. It rests on the promises that God has made, and because of that, it can't fail. It's not going to fall apart. Paul and Barnabas start off by saying to the Jewish people, we had to speak the word of God to you first. What what does that mean? Why did they have to speak the word of God to the Jewish people first? You may have noticed that when they came to this city, they didn't set up a, a soapbox in the public square and start street preaching. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath initially. And then after they get kicked out of this town in chapter 14, chapter 14 verse 1 says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There's a pattern that starts to develop here, hey? Paul and Barnabas go to the Jews first. Why why do they do that? This isn't just preference. They say they have to do it, right? They had to do it. So why do they have to do it? Well, if you remember last week, the sermon that Paul preached was talked about how Jesus doesn't just come on the scene with no context. He's the climax of a very long story. Paul preached last week about how the entire history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament leads up to Jesus. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the promises that God made to his people. That The Old Old Testament is God laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus. The promises that God makes, they start with Abraham, right? We know the story of Abraham. God calls him. He's a pagan, living in a pagan country. And he calls him out of that and says, I want you to follow me. And if you do, he makes him this promise. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. Even though you can't have a child right now, you will have many descendants, and they will become a great nation. And they do, they become the nation of Israel. And then he says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. That's in Genesis chapter 12. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham who brought God's blessing to the nations. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the king of Israel, and he's the one they've been waiting for. And so Paul says, you had the right to know first because you've been waiting for him. God keeps his promises. And and we know that God doesn't ever break his promises. So if God keeps his promises and his mission to save the world is based on those promises, we know that that mission can't fall apart. It can't fail. Put a pin in that for a second because there's a second thing that we we need to see out of this response. The second thing that I want you to notice in Paul and Barnabas' response is that God is all in on this mission. He is completely committed to it. He's not hedging his bets. He's not uncertain. He is all in. And again, for a second reason, it cannot fail because of God's commitment to it. God is all in on the mission, so it can't fail. Paul says, and Barnabas say, because so many Jewish people have rejected the good news of Jesus, they say in verse 46, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That quote, that command that Paul says was given to them is another promise, actually, from the Old Testament. It's in the the prophet Isaiah in chapter 49, right? It answers the question, how would Abraham's descendant bring salvation to the ends of the earth, or bring blessing to the ends of the earth? In, In Isaiah, there's this figure that comes up a number of times called God's servant. And God says, I've sent this servant on mission to save my people 
And then he says in this passage, not just my people, but also to be a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And all these passages about the servant in Isaiah culminate in Isaiah 53. It's a very famous passage. We know it. Handel wrote a, book, a song called The Messiah. We, we you know, talk about it all the time. Isaiah 53 says, But he, that servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to, his, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on, the, on this servant, the iniquity of us all. God's servant is the one who brought salvation to the world by dying for our sins. And that servant is none other than Jesus. God's son who was born into the nation of Israel. He was a descendant of Abraham and he fulfilled all of the promises of God. But think about how invested God is in this mission. He sent his son to fulfill the promises to bless Israel and the rest of the world his son to be a light to the Gentiles, right? 2,000 years ago, and, and by the way, 2,000 years after Abraham, Jesus, God's son, became a human. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life and then died on the cross, a death that he didn't deserve but that we did for our sins. He took the wrath of the Father for us and then rose again in victory over sin and death. I say that every week on Sundays. You know that message. It's two sentences. It took me about 20 seconds to say, but every part of that sentence, of that message, should blow your mind. God became a human and died for us and then defeated sin and death because he loved us and despite our rebellion against him? That's incredible. That's how invested God is in his mission to save the world, that he would go to such lengths. And if God's invested that deeply into it, he's not going to let his mission fail. So if that's what God is doing in his mission, here's our role. The first part, I have three things in the notes. The first one is, is faith. Your first role, as always, as a Christian, is faith. Just believe that all of that is true. Contemplate it, ponder it, pray about it, sing about it. Let it soak into your heart and mind and shape who you are. You know, when we share the gospel with somebody or when we want to, we can feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. I have to get this right. So much is riding on me right here and right now. But here's the truth of this. God's mission to save the world does not ride on you. It doesn't ride on one moment of success or failure. God's mission to, the, to save the world has a cosmic scope. It goes so far beyond you and me, so far beyond our feeble efforts to do anything. God's promised to do this. He's invested heavily in making it happen, and therefore the mission is not going to fail. It takes a weight off of our shoulders and gives us a freedom to do the second part of our role. The second part of our role, as a result of believing that, is that we open our mouths and speak boldly. We speak boldly. You know, because Paul and Barnabas believed that Jesus fulfilled the promises that God had sent to his people, and that he showed such commitment that he had sent Jesus, that they were willing to do their part. They said, we can, we can be sous chefs in this mission. So much so that they took the promise that God had given about Jesus being a light to the Gentiles and bring salvation to the end of the earth, and they had appropriated that promise as a command to themselves, right? They said, this is the command that we've received. 
Jesus is the light, and we've come to shine it for you. And so they're going to do that by speaking boldly about him. And we see that twice in our passage today. Acts 13.46 says, Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. And again in Acts chapter 14, verse 1, so Paul and Barnabas, or sorry, not 14.1, but uh, I didn't write down the verse. Uh, verse, th- verse 3, Acts 14.3, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Speak boldly about Jesus. Now, you don't have to be a naturally bold person to speak boldly. What you do need to do is have confidence in this truth that we've been talking about. It doesn't mean that you never get nervous or scared. Bravery is, doesn't mean that you never get scared. Bravery means that you do, the, do what you know you need to do even when you are scared. Ask God to help you to really believe the words of Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. There comes that, that idea again. Rely on God and then just open your mouth and speak boldly. Speak boldly, but then the third thing is also to speak effectively. Speak effectively. We see that come up in Acts chapter 14, verse 1. There, in this new town, they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Now, before you say, but I'm not good at speaking. I, don't, I get muddled and tongue-tied and don't know what to say. Listen, I understand that. I do. And even if you are a good speaker, that doesn't mean that people are going to be convinced just because you're good at it. Even Paul and Barnabas were rejected by many people. Even Jesus was rejected. And ultimately, our effectiveness is up to God, right? He decides who's going to respond, how that's going to go. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But that doesn't mean that you don't have some work to put into this. Right? What I, what I want you to hear from this is simply this. If you say, I don't know what to say in sharing the gospel, that's not an excuse to not share the gospel. That's a reason to do some work to figure out what to say so that you can share the gospel. Right? You don't have to be a master debater or an apologetic uh, apologist, uh, you know, someone who can, you know, debate the, the hardest questions. You do need to know how to explain the gospel, though. Right? If you've taken membership classes or been baptized here in the past few years and you've had to write out your testimony, you know that one of the things that we emphasize is don't just say something generic like, I met God or I became a Christian. You need to so- make sure that someone who hears your testimony can know how to become a Christian themselves. Right? To be able to say, I'm a sinner who's rebelled against God, and I deserve God's punishment. God would be just to punish me, but he loves me and didn't want to punish me, so instead, in his love, he sent his son, Jesus, into the world as a human to live a perfect life that I couldn't live and then die the death that I should have died, taking the punishment for my sins and then rising again to defeat sin and death forever. I put my faith in Jesus, I trust in him, I'm trying to turn from my sin and honor him as my king and my Lord every day. You've got to figure out how to say something similar to that. God can use just that to be effective. That's all it takes. You may run into follow-up questions that you don't know how to answer, and you have to find help with those too, but God can use your effective articulation of the gospel, just explaining the basics of it, to turn someone's heart towards him. That's our role. Know what to say just even at that basic level. So, If God's mission is to save the world through Jesus, 
And that mission is one that will not fail because he has promised to fulfill it and he has gone all in on his commitment for it. And if my role is to believe, to speak boldly and speak effectively, there's, one, there's another follow-up question that, that comes out of that. If God's so committed to this mission, what does it mean when people reject the gospel? That's a hard question, right? right? What does it mean when someone doesn't, doesn't want to hear it? Says, no, I, I, I don't want anything to do with that. God's mission cannot fail, but a lot of people reject him. Even many of the Jewish people, his chosen people that he made these promises to, have rejected Jesus and his gospel. What does that mean? There's all this talk about the, the cosmic mission of God that cannot fail. Is, is that a cruel joke? A waste of time? Look at how Paul and Barnabas respond to the Jewish people who have rejected the gospel again in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. They say, that, then Paul and Barnabas answered them both boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So here's what they said to them. You, you have rejected God's gospel and you do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life. That's the NIV that we use here. The English Standard Version has a slightly more literal translation. He says, rather than consider yourself, it says, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. What Paul's saying here is to these Jewish people and to anyone else in the history of the world who rejects the gospel, by doing so, you cast judgment on yourself. You show that you're not worthy of salvation. Now, those are, that's a hard thing to hear, right? No wonder they got mad at them. But let's, let's think about this a little bit more deeply, right? Why does God need to save the world in the, in the first place? Why is that a, an issue? Well, the beginning of the gospel is that we're sinners. We've, we've rebelled against our creator. We've turned our back on him. We've spat in his face and we sin. We deserve, we deserve judgment. We deserve eternal death. Or another way of putting it is none of us are worthy of eternal life. Right? Romans chapter 3, verses 22 to 23 says there's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. Don't take this as anything against the Jewish people in particular. There's no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul isn't saying to these Jewish people, because you rejected the gospel right now, you've become unworthy of eternal life. He says, you're just acting out what's true of all of us. This is what it means to be a human. It's part of our identity naturally by ourselves without God's intervention. So, so what does it mean when people reject the gospel? It means that we're all unworthy of eternal life. It shouldn't shock us when people reject the gospel. We need the gospel because we reject God. And so once again, here's your role. We've already talked about faith, about speaking boldly and speaking effectively, but when we consider that some people are going to reject the gospel because we're all unworthy of it, we have to accept that our role in evangelism is going to be to suffer. We're going to experience loss as a result of sharing the gospel. People are going to hate the message of salvation, the message of God's love and they're going to, the message of God's forgiveness, they're going to hate it. And they're going to hate us for telling them about it. They're going to contradict us. They're going to heap abuse on us. Listen again to what happened to Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13.50. It says, But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they, that is Paul and Barnabas, shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. 
Paul and Barnabas got run out of town, probably violently. Hands laid on, toss them across the, re- the border, get out of here. You know, that's unlikely to happen to you in Canada, <laughs> literally like that. But if you are faithful in sharing the gospel, you are likely to lose relationships, to lose career opportunities, to be despised by your neighbors. Are you, are you prepared for that? Are you able to trust God enough to obey him anyway? And when that rejection comes, to be willing to shake the dust off your feet, which is a, a way of saying, though you have rejected me, you are the ones who are outside of God's blessing. And I would rather be accepted by God and rejected by you. I would rather lose my life for God and gain my soul. That's a tall order. That's a hard thing to be willing and able to do, and none of us really knows until it comes to it whether we're going to do it or not. It gets a bit easier, though, when we ask our final follow-up question. If we're all unworthy of salvation, and we should expect people to reject it, and we should be prepared to suffer, our final follow-up question is, then what does it mean when people accept the gospel? What does it mean when people accept the gospel, when they, when they do believe and they do turn to Christ? Look at what happens in this passage after Paul and Barnabas say these things to the unbelieving Jews. Chapter 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. These Gentiles are excited, right? Not only were they unsaved before rebels against God, but they weren't Jewish They had no way to really get into God's good graces except for becoming Jewish before this. They know they don't deserve it. But now that the message has come to them and they can be saved and they're excited, it says they they honor the word of the Lord. They don't reject it offhand out of jealousy. They listen to it and consider it. And it says all who were appointed to eternal life believed. If we're all unworthy of eternal life, why do some accept the gospel? This passage says because some are appointed to eternal life by God. That's a big truth to wrap our minds around. Some people are going to have a hard time accepting it. It's right here, though. It's right in black and white in the Bible. Who accepts the gospel? Those who have been appointed to eternal life. Not the wisest among us, not the godliest among us, not the most worthy, the ones God appointed. So if the question is, what does it mean when people accept the gospel, here's the answer. It means that God graciously and sovereignly chose them, though they were still unworthy. God graciously and sovereignly chose them, though they were unworthy. Now, what does that mean, exactly, that God chose us? I don't fully know, right? It's a mystery. But the basics of it are are just this. That God is sovereign over everything. He's in charge. He's the king. And he really is sovereign over everything, including salvation. all All of us are unworthy and unable, and we would not come to God on our own. We would reject him left to ourselves. So God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He intervenes in our lives and chooses us. I don't know why. I don't know how. And we could go crazy trying to figure out the details of this, couldn't we? We aren't robots with no choice. That's not what the Bible says. We are responsible for our choices. And yet God is sovereign over salvation as he is sovereign over everything else. He chooses. 
And we have to live with the paradox of that and be okay with that, that difficulty. But even if we don't understand it, we can take comfort in it. That's our next role in evangelism. We can, our final role is to take comfort in his sovereignty. When we share the gospel, we do so knowing that God is going to save someone. He has people that he has chosen that are his, and he is going to save them. It may not be everybody that we'd like it to be, everybody that we talk to, but God has his elect that he will save. And ultimately, it doesn't depend on how well you do. It depends on God. That's what kept Paul and Barnabas going. Look at verse 49. Even though they're being rejected and mistreated, verse 49 says, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Verse 52 says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Though they were rejected, though they were run out of town, that couldn't stop the word of God from spreading. And it couldn't stop those who had been appointed by God for eternal life from believing and those new disciples from being filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. Because God's word will prevail and lives will be changed. We can take comfort and we can keep going. The same is true in the next town that they went to as well in chapter 14. We're not going to look at that in detail today. They faced persecution there as well, but some believed, and so they stuck it out for a long time, facing that persecution head on because they knew these new believers need to be strengthened in their faith. They stuck it out there until there was a plot to kill them, and then they got out of town, right? They're like, okay, this is, let's not be unwise about this. We can go into the next town. But even in the next town, they didn't stop. They continued sharing the gospel, and we're going to see next week they come back to this town to continue on their ministry later on. You know, if, if you're someone that rather than finding comfort in God's sovereignty, you're tempted to say, well, if he's going to save people and it doesn't depend on how well I do, then why do I even need to share the gospel? If you're the kind of person that thinks that way, the answer is because he's commanded you to and, and because he's chosen you to, right? He doesn't just choose people who haven't been saved yet. If you're here and you're sa- saved, it's because God chose you and he's a mission for you to do. In his sovereignty and in his grace and his love, he chose you so that you could share in the blessings of Jesus and then shine the light of Jesus into the world. So rather than making up arguments about free will, just be thankful. Go share the gospel with confidence. You can't mess up his mission because he's committed to it. You can't mess up his mission because it's based on his promises. He's been committed to this mission not just for 2,000 years, since Jesus came, not just for 4,000 years since he made those promises to Abraham, but for all of eternity, since before the creation of the world, before time existed, since before he cho- that, at that time before the creation of the world is when he chose who to save. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 that I, I used in my pastoral prayer today says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in according with his pleasure and will. He chose up to him to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Go out and be thankful and share the gospel with confidence. That also doesn't give an excuse though to anyone here who's not a Christian yet. 
Though God is sovereign over salvation, he still calls us to himself. He challenges each of us to turn from our sins and put our faith in him and believe and repent. That invitation is open to you if you're not a Christian yet. And if you find yourself being drawn to him and you put your faith in him and you want to turn from your sins, you can have the assurance that that's not a mistake or an accident, that God chose you before the creation of the world to be his. God's in charge when it comes to our salvation. We're not the ones responsible to get it right, but we do have a role to play. Our, that role, first, as always, is, is to have faith, just to trust him, to know that he knows what he's doing and that he will not let his mission fail. That he is invested, that he is sovereign. And then to speak boldly and as effectively as you can, to be willing to suffer and to take comfort, knowing that all of it's worth it. That's your role.